You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Here's Nate. Well, in Proverbs chapter 6, Solomon spoke to his son about the negative impact of adultery. But in chapter 7, he's going to now dramatize how a young man who lacks sense, as we'll see in verse 7, is actually taken out by an adulteress. It's a, it's a look in a very wise kind of way, obviously, because this is Proverbs, at how it all actually happens and some of the mechanisms that go into place in taking someone out through um, and into sexual sin. So here's how it begins with just simply an additional push towards wisdom in general. He says in verse 1, My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Teach my, keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth uh, words. So here Solomon says a a few things, kind of the repeated idea, keep my words, bind them on your fingers, write them uh, on your heart. That's a repeated concept that Solomon has previously spoken about to his son. Uh, An additional thing, however, is that he says, keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Uh, That means uh, literally the center of a thing. So here it means the center, so the apple of, means the center of your eye, which is the pupil, which is something that must be protected. And it really is interesting how the body reflexively uh, will, you know, in danger times, protect the eyes. The understanding of the body is that that is important. And he's saying to his son, my commandments, the wisdom I'm giving to you, they must be reflexively defended by you. They must be, uh, you know, seen as incredibly valuable. Protect these words, focus upon these words and say to wisdom, you're my sister, you're my friend. And those are words in the Old Testament era that oftentimes indicated an intimate relative, uh, sometimes even used as a reference for a bride. You might even call your bride your sister from time to time. And so God's wisdom, he's saying, must become family to you, my son. They will keep you, if they get inside of your heart, he says to his son in verse 5, from the forbidden uh, woman. Now, here in verse 6, he goes on, And he begins to give what sounds like uh, an eyewitness account, or it could be simply a literary way of describing one of his own personal experiences or the experience of an acquaintance or entirely fictional. But he says in verse 6, he says, For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I've seen among the simple, I perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. 
So he begins to speak about this young man uh, who he describes as simple and who he describes as lacking sense. Now, why did Solomon view this young man in this way? Was he being judgmental? No, he was simply observing the outcome of this young man's life. It was the time of darkness, and no one with wisdom would walk by the house of a known adulterer uh, or adulteress at the time of darkness if they weren't, you know, in a folly uh, flirting with disaster. And the thing about sexual sin is that it is often indulged in after deliberately going near the place of temptation and danger. This is partly why in a wired world, there is an element of danger constantly in a person's life. Now, the Lord hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. And as we throw ourselves into believing uh, community, community with like-minded, Jesus-centered people, uh, we can overcome this kind of uh, darkness, but the temptation does exist. One uh, author said, we can't help being tempted, but we can certainly help tempting ourselves. And so he describes this young man. Then he says in verse 10, And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. So here Solomon describes the actions or the ways of this woman. And it's actually highly instructive. First of all, she comes out and she is dressed as a prostitute. In other words, by visual appearance, her intentions are abundantly clear. This is not just simply uh, her being a beautiful woman or a beautiful person. No, she's taking that beauty and twisting it, putting an obvious intention uh, to it. And so that is a very clear thing that she's communicating with her dress. So she's only really dressing like a prostitute uh, because she actually is not a prostitute, but she is uh, communicating the intentions of her heart. Uh, Also, notice that he says she is wily of heart. Other translations use for that word sly or cunning or crafty intent or having a hidden agenda. What this speaks of is that not only did she have intentions to sin, but she had a plan. She had a plan that she was devising against this young man. And so often when people are taken out in this particular sin, especially, there is a plan on someone's part. And uh, there is an aggressiveness and a desire to uh, have them. If I could just obtain them, if I could just get that uh, girl in my office to compromise where she's at and, and her relationship she's in to sleep with me kind of concept. There's a plan that is attached to all of the uh, flirtation, all of the communication, all the niceties. Uh, She here, this woman at least, has a plan. She's wily of heart. 
He also says in verse 11 that she is loud and wayward. This means that she has a rebellious nature. This isn't just Solomon making a comment about her personality, that she's outgoing or boisterous or something like that. No, he's making a comment about her nature. There's rebellion within. Not only is she loud, but connected to the volume is a wayward, rebellious uh, kind of nature. And he also says, verse 11, that her feet do not stay at home. So she is uh, prowling. In other words, there was a sphere that God had given to her in her home with her husband, and she would not stay there. She was continually looking outside of it, unsatisfied with what God had given to her, which, of course, is the only thing that would satisfy. But she was looking for something else. She was prowling and rebellious and planning and full of intentions. And she comes out, and the major thing here is that she initiates all of it. She meets him, she seizes him, she kisses him. There is initiation, which sometimes men enjoy taking that passive role and letting a woman do all of this. And of course, in a married relationship between a husband and a wife, sexually, a wife will grow more and more comfortable and uh, willing to, as they mutually minister to one another and, and just enjoy each other sexually, she'll have times where she's very comfortable with initiating and all of that by the grace of God. However, here it's incredibly inappropriate and she's initiating everything. She meets him, she seizes him, she kisses him. And uh, so this is an incredibly inappropriate way to express herself. But all of it, these are the ways of this woman. Now, her words are seen at the end of verse 13 all the way through verse 20. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I have paid my vows. So now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I've found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. Now, notice the words that this woman uses. First of all, she mentions to this young, foolish man that she had paid her vows. Now, the question is, why did she mention this? Now, quite possibly what she meant was that she had paid her vows. And in the Old Testament era, so often when you paid a vow that you had made to God, you would go and offer a sacrifice that would be eaten uh, sort of there with God and in fellowship with God, but then there would be leftover meat from that sacrifice, which needed to be, in a world without refrigeration, consumed uh, fairly speedily. And so perhaps she is simply saying to this man, I've just gone about my religious, spiritual obligations. I have paid my vows, and now I have some food to eat. Why don't you come with me and we can enjoy it together? And if that is the case, and you have a woman who obviously for her, worship is meaningless and routine. 
And so often people will fall into the trap of thinking that if a person just goes to the house of worship, if they just follow some religious ceremony, then they must be a legitimate person who truly loves the Lord. But this is not always the case. She says to him, I've come out to meet you. She appeals to his ego. She tries to tell him, you are special to me. But the reality is he was not special. For her, the thrill of the act was special. The feeling of the moment was special. The excitement was special, but not this man. She says to him, I've spread my couch with coverings. In other words, she begins to appeal to fantasy, to his imagination. Just imagine what it's like in my home right now. And let us take, she says, our fill of love until morning. But this is not love at all. It's absolutely lust. And she tells him there in verse 19, my husband is not at home. She's appealing to the myth of a consequence-free experience. And the reality is, is that doesn't exist. And so she says all of these words, trying to design a platform uh, whereby this man will enter into uh, sexual sin. Now, this kind of commentary happens individually quite constantly. But I think for the astute observer, we'd look around at so many cultures throughout the world, including the culture that I'm living and ministering in, and we would say this kind of message is being communicated culturally so often. Consequence-free sexual experiences, that lust is actually Love, uh, fantasy is being appealed to, ego is being appealed to, uh, religion is seen as just something that you just kind of do, but you can live however you want to live uh, in the middle of all of that. And with verse 21, much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. And Solomon here goes straight for it with his young son by saying, this man becomes like a beast, like an ox to the slaughter, like a deer caught in a trap till its hunter comes and pierces him with an arrow, or like a bird that rushes into a trap and is caught, this man does not know that it will cost him his life. Sometimes physical death, but more often spiritual death and moral corruption that will come upon uh, his life. And part of the reason that Solomon is so aggressive in dealing with this particular subject is that he understands if he can preserve his sons in this area of life, then they will be well set for a successful, fruitful life. And that this was one of the first things first kind of experiences in the heart of a strong, robust young man, he must learn how to gain self-control in this area of his life. And so that's how Solomon closes this chapter in verse 24. And now, O sons, listen to me. 
and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, or hell, going down to the chambers of death. And so again, guarding the heart, understanding the end of all of this. Now, I should say that in looking at Proverbs 5 and 6 and 7, the irony is thick because Solomon instructs his son to watch out for the forbidden woman. But Solomon eventually became a man who ran headlong towards this particular sin. And we might be tempted to dismiss his teaching because of that, but actually it's because of that that we should that this is it reinforces the importance of this teaching. In other words, if even Solomon who knew these things firm within his heart, if even Solomon could drift from that wisdom, then so so much more so you and I ought to be aggressive to cling to, to treasure, to apply to, to hang around our necks the wisdom of God. Because if even Solomon could drift from it, then how much more why might we? This was the logic that Nehemiah used when he came back to Jerusalem and discovered after years of absence that the men in Jerusalem had obtained foreign wives for themselves, even though they had previously made a commitment that they would not do such a thing. He said to them in Nehemiah 13 verse 26, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. So again, Nehemiah saw the greatness of Solomon eroded through a lust for foreign women. So again, the warning is strong, the admonitions are thick, and apparently for good reason. Now, in chapter 8, Solomon goes on to give us, again, further uh, value of wisdom, what it's all about, and why it is so important and uh, worthy of our high regard. And part of the way that Solomon will regard the wisdom so highly is through another one of his personifications of wisdom. He says in verse 1 of chapter 8, Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights, beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates, in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud, To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. And so here the idea is wisdom is not lurking, like unlike the uh, adulterous woman of chapter 7, hiding and in the shadows. Here you see wisdom at the heights, at the crossroads, at the gates, at the entrance of the portals. She's at the places where everyone exists, abundant, ready, available, to anyone is the idea. She calls out to men. Verse 4, and to simple ones and fools in verse uh, 5 
and 6. Simple are those who need the wisdom of God most, and fools are those who reject the wisdom of God most. And the reality is that God continues to call mankind uh, through wisdom. He's very patient in this process. And the call from Wisdom personified as this very public woman is very simple in verse 6 and 11. Here, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. These noble things uh, speak of, uh, or it could be translated, captain or ruler in the Old Testament. These are words of wisdom that can be the captain or the ruler over our lives and over our actions, building a strong life. And again, as we've talked about previously, a life that is lived with skill. And she talks about those who... uh, They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. In other words, God's word is clear to the right people. As we learn in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. So we have the mind of Christ, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.16. We've been given that by our new birth. Therefore, the wisdom of God is something that is right and true and righteous and straight to us. And I think the thing that Solomon is emphasizing here is very simple. It's good for us to remember that life or a life is built upon words. You see, your actions are built on philosophies, and those philosophies can be codified in words. Jesus said, if you hear these words of mine and do them, you'll be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Solomon goes on to describe the cry of wisdom. Verse 10, take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold for wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. So here Solomon is saying that wisdom should be more desirable than material wealth like silver, like gold and like jewels. And why? Why would we value wisdom more than material wealth? Well, because it contributes to things of true value. Uh, Character and peace and relational health and success in life and good speech and good counsel and great understanding and guidance in life and strength internally all come from wisdom. Material wealth cannot provide any of those elements, not that It can't be found with those elements, but it can't actually produce those elements in a person's life. But additionally, you would also desire wisdom more than material wealth because at times, and especially in the Old Testament era, it contributes to gaining material wealth. When you have wisdom, you understand how to work and invest, make money, 
all of that comes through a life of wisdom. I, wisdom, verse 12, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance in the way of evil, and perverted speech I hate. So prudence is who wisdom dwells with. Prudence is good judgment, cautiousness, showing care and thought for the future. So quick decision-making, a haphazard kind of life, that is not prudence, and wisdom is not allowed to operate there. Uh, Wisdom needs caution, slowness, thought about the future, good judgment. And wisdom also needs the fear of the Lord, a reverence for God, which here Solomon tells us is actually equal to or equated to in one sense or another, the hatred of evil. So here's a reminder that true wisdom is moral as well as mental. Now in verse 14, Solomon goes on to describe some of the benefits of wisdom, again through wisdom personified. I have counsel and sound wisdom, she says. Verse 14, I have insight, I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, Princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. So strength and reign and rule and just governance come from and through wisdom. So this tells us that counsel and judgment and understanding belong to wisdom. And what that often produces in a person's life is power. In other words, people want uh, those who have wisdom to rule and to reign, and to govern, because when they are responsible, wonderful things flow from a leader who has these principles embedded into their lives. Uh, He says in verse 17, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. And again, this is wisdom as this woman crying out, riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me, and filling their treasuries. So here he's saying, if anyone, or wisdom is saying, she's saying, if anyone loves me, uh, then they will find me. Uh, James says in James 1 verse 5, for a New Testament parallel of this, if any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without a reproach and it will be given him. So uh, my exhortation here as this woman is crying out is we ought to be a people who have a strong devotional life where we're pursuing the Lord in his wisdom, in his word, and in prayer, and crying out to God for help and strength. Now, part of the value of wisdom is, as we've seen earlier in Proverbs, is that the Lord actually used wisdom at the moment of creation. And that is mentioned in the rest of uh, chapter 8, starting in verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work the first of his acts of old. Uh, Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or 
the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him. Like a master workman, I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. Now, this does sound a little bit like Jesus, but this isn't Jesus because he actually is the Lord. And of course, he is uncreated, as we learn in the New Testament, uh, places like Colossians 1, verse 15 to 17. However, he is the ultimate wisdom, so the parallel is very nice. But here wisdom says, at the very beginning, I was there. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. Wisdom was involved in creation. And so if God used wisdom, then we really must need wisdom because God operated with it. So we should not operate without it. And now, O sons, verse 32, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways, hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, a daily relationship, waiting beside my doors. For whoever, verse 35, finds me, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateoldridge.com.